This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. Shorts! <laughs> From WNYC. See? Yes. And NPR. Uh, all right. Three, two, one. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krillwich. This is Radio Lab, the, the podcast. podcast. This week we are going to... We're I'm going just, live. You were going live. Sort of. From, from the New York Public Library, where they have Woo! a program called New York Public Library Live. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just get the introductions done. Steve. When was it, by the way? When was it? It was in November. Was and it on a Monday or a Thursday I don't or remember the day, but I do remember the people who are on the stage with me. They are wonderful, but irritating. They are <laughs> Stephen Johnson, who's got a new book called Where Good Ideas Come From. And then there's Kevin Kelly with a book that he entitles um, What Technology, what Technology wants. wants. So that's Kevin. That's just a weird question, right? I mean, what does, if I met a spoon... I know what it wants. It wants whatever I want. I take it, put it in the soup, bring it to my mouth, suck on it, put it down. When it's down, it's just nothing. It doesn't want anything. So, so at least that's my notion. So when you ask this question, or actually you don't even ask it, your book title answers it. What technology wants? What, what does that mean? So I, I think we view technology generally to mean um, all this new stuff, this gadget stuff, and stuff that's in our pockets and... Um, kind of uh, around our household. But um, I wanted to look at it, not the individual objects, because as an, a single object doesn't want really anything, as, as you're suggesting. I wanted to look at the way in which that object, that say that iPhone, that iPhone requires thousands of different technologies to make that one other technology. So there is a web of technologies that are kind of interdependent, interweaving to produce what I think of as sort of a superorganism of technology. That you mean all the spoons, all the forks, forks all, all the knives, and all the telephones? All the telephones, all the factories, all the roads, everything together, and us together form a new thing that, like other superorganisms, have an emergent kind of agenda that, that is beyond just the spoon. So the spoon itself is sort of like the bee or the ant in the colony. It, doesn't really mean much, but together, all those spoons and everything else connected together, all the little chips, all the wires, all the roads, it does form something that does begin in a very small way to have the slimmest bit of autonomy, and autonomy that wasn't there in the individual pieces. Autonomy and some kind of will? Well, so want, that's, that's a strong word when I use the word want, because we immediately think of what you want and what I want and say, it's a deliberately thinking about, hmm, what do I want? But I mean want in the way in which that flower, when it was alive, <laughs> it's sort of hanging on. <laughs> wanted 
light. And so it kind of leans towards the light a little bit. It has a drift, it has a tendency towards the light. It's not intelligent, it's not conscious, but the plant itself is wants light. It leans towards the light. So the technium, which is the word I use to distinguish this whole superorganism of technology, it's leaning in certain directions. It has certain tendencies, so it wants to go in certain directions. We'll get to the directions where it may want to go. Let me ask you, your, your question is a little more modest than his. Uh, <laughs> I aim a little lower. This is Steve Johnson. Where it's been my th- career path is to aim just a little lower <laughs> than Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Figure out where Kevin is going and just yeah. steer right <laughs> underneath <laughs> uh, So your question is, is uh, where do good ideas come from? So for you, uh, let me look at the word idea. For you to use that word, what do you mean? Everything from you know, scientific breakthroughs, technological breakthroughs, breakthroughs in the creative arts, um, and also just kind of ordinary breakthroughs in our lives where we have a good idea that helps us kind of live a little bit better, be a little bit better in our jobs, you know, human innovation. But when you use the word innovation or idea, so for most people in the cartoon version, that's the light bulb going on. So some guy is sitting there thinking, 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 bing, and then they think, oh, E equals MC squared, something like that. For you, when you look into a brain, you don't see anything coming out of nothing. There's something a little bit more. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things I think you have to kind of undo when you you approach a topic like this, um, which is this idea that the the breakthrough idea, the light bulb moment, is a single thing happening in a single mind, um, and, and that it happens in an instant. For some reason, we want to tell the story that way. There's this kind of innate desire. I mean, as a storyteller, I want to tell the story that way, too. And, and people do tend to build these elaborate fictions about their kind of moments of, of epiphany. Um, but when you go back and look at the historical record and kind of rewind the tape and, and play it slowly, and so many of these breakthrough, allegedly kind of breakthrough epiphanies, what you find is, in fact, that the idea was incubating for a very long period of time. It actually builds upon other ideas by other people. Um, it's, it's more of a kind of a remixing of other people's concepts and other people's tools. And it kind of fades into view over a, a much longer period of time. This is what I call the, the slow hunch in the book. That it's not this kind of gut impression or this sudden you know, moment of clarity, but this much more evolutionary, more, more kind of lingering process. Do you have the sense that there is never a eureka moment? Or do you have like, you know, one eureka moment and 50 slow small interviews. I, I think that the, there are moments where you do kind of advance in, in, in some clear fashion and you, you suddenly do see things in a new ways. A lot of them come in dreams. Actually, the book yeah. talks a lot about how many amazing empirical scientific discoveries actually occur to people in, in dreams. But I, I guess part of what I'm trying to do with this argument is to kind of correct that, the emphasis we place on those things. And the other thing about those eureka moments is that they may and often usually do occur to at least 10 other people at the same time, right. which diminishes the eureka-ness of it. <laughs> right. For example? For example, every single invention that we know about, for example, the telephone, the patents for the telephone were submitted by Alexander Graham Bell and um, Gray within three hours of each other. Really? Yes. And... Um, the light bulbs were the light bulb that we associate with Thomas Edison. He was the last of 23 other people. To mean there was no light bulb, 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 then boom! Within a matter of a couple of years, light bulb. Everybody had the light bulb idea. And What would explain the sudden ubiquity of an idea after a long, eternal silence? 
the precursor inventions that are required for that next step have all been done. So you, it, it's a kind of, it's like a growth where you need to go through a certain stage to get to the next stage. You have to have all the parts. And because no idea is alone, the light bulb required, you know, whatever is a hundred other sub-inventions to sustain it, to even conceive of it. And when they're in place and then it's like the next idea is just there. And so being too early with an idea is really as bad or worse than being too late. So we, we both use this, uh, Kevin and I are both kind of fans of this phrase from Stuart Kaufman, the, the, this idea of the adjacent possible. The adjacent possible. And the, yeah, I mean, it's, just bear with me. It's, a good, I, it's useful. Um, <laughs> and the idea is so basically... So many syllables. At, at any given time. Oh, come on. This is a very literary crowd. They can okay. handle the set of syllables. So the idea is at any given time, both in the evolution of life and in the evolution of technology, there are kind of given the state of the current system, there are a finite set of moves that are possible. Um, so imagine it like a chessboard, right? You're in the middle of a game, there's a certain number of moves that are possible, a much larger set of moves that are not possible. Um, the same is true of, of, you know, technological history. You cannot invent a microwave oven in 1650, just as you cannot invent an automobile in, in ancient Egypt. Just to make sure, you could imagine one, right. but you can't build it. Yes, although it is, it is remarkably hard to imagine one. That's, huh. that's part of the point here. I mean, when I, I saw this in detail in Invention of Air, the book about your friend Joe Priestley, who I like that you're a colloquial <laughs> <laughs> friend in terms of him. He killed a lot of mice. So, <laughs> so, so Priestley is most famous for inventing oxygen, isolating oxygen for the first time, which is another case of a multiple discovery where three other people kind of discovered it right around the same time independently, more or less. And the point was that they were able to, to think about isolating oxygen for the first time, partially because there were tools that there were scales and things that made it easier to kind of realize that this element was there. But the biggest one was a conceptual leap, which is it only had become possible a couple of years before to even think about the air as being something you wanted to investigate scientifically. Up until that point, they were like, well, I want to investigate wood and bodies and hearts and brains and rocks, but... Well, the air stuff, was pure. The stuff air between all this. Why would why would air, we study that? Fire, There's water, nothing there, right? Yeah, right? You know? right, right, right. And and it was because of a number of partially because they discovered vacuums where they were like not the cleaners but the empty air, the the lack of air that they were like, okay, this is a vacuum, so there must be something in normal air that we can actually study and understand. And so conceptually, that became a platform that enabled Priestley to kind of think in a way, and and his compatriots to think in a way that. It was much harder to think even, even five decades before us. Well, are you, are you, do you think that when the environment is, is, is ready, in some sense, then it will happen? So it's as, almost as if the technium, your phrase, is kind of whispering, now. Right. Yes. It is. It is a, 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 an environment that we're in, and... It is, it's creepy to me. It's, it is creepy. And, and, and it's also, because it's inevitable too, that's also another creepy word that people get spooked by. Inevitable? Inevitable, right. Do you believe that? Do you believe that I, a spoon is an inevitable, an inevitable thing that's bound to happen if you're hungry and you invent soup? <laughs> yes, definitely. So the question is, is I don't think everyone... But that everyone would think of spoon at the same, same time. time. They probably did. Let me try this. Yeah. We're going to win you. Right? <laughs> so so the, the, the one very active evolutionary theory debate is, is something like the inevitability of evolution, given enough time, evolving eyes. 
right? Yes. Light is the fastest way to transmit information. And so the idea is that given enough evolutionary time, creatures would evolve the ability to kind of process and make sense of, uh, of light um, and, and to somehow kind of act on that information, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out what we find when we go back is that eyes independently evolved multiple times in completely different lines because there was just something about the physics of the world that made that, despite the fact that evolution didn't on some level want to, there was no intelligent designer saying eyes would be good, uh, mm -hmm. light waves move very fast, that would be a good thing to do. It. But, we, but evolution kept stumbling its way towards that innovation on these, on these separate paths. Okay. And I, I think that's, that's where I 100% agree no one Kevin. says that eyes wanted to be there. No one said that there was a niche called the well, eye the niche is, waiting no, the, for this, eyes. The very All serious question, which, which I think is, is real, is then how do you describe that? How do you describe that inevitability of a system not being directed, somehow ending up again and again? If you rewound the tape and ran it again, you would have eyes. Eyes would just keep showing up. So Kevin, I think, has is, is picked this provocative but I think useful way of describing it, which is that there is this tendency of that system to go towards those attractors. There are kind of magnets that the system will gravitate towards. Look what he's done. He's <laughs> spoons. <laughs> no, so, but then spoons are the point. Eventually so, people will invent spoons as well. Spoons right. are an attractor. So, so, he's so, saying so that Robert, the spoons why, will get together. Why, you obsessed? Why, why does this bother you so much? <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, because, because, for no, 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 the no, obvious no. reason that you are crossing a line here. You are saying that living systems, which have a logic, which he describes very well, right. have that the logic of living systems also belongs to these um, inanimate things. Right. The, the history of technology sounds like, from both of you, sounds suspiciously like the history of life. Right. And, and I think... Um, well, I'm very suspicious of this. You, 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 yeah, you, you should be, because the Mac does not look like a sunflower. But <laughs> there, there are... Tremendous similarities in, in many ways. And um, there was a famous uh, evolutionary biologist, Niles Eldridge, or is, he's still alive. And uh, Niles' uh, specialty is studying tribolites, mapping the morphology of them as they change. He can make kind of... Trilobites. Trilobites. Yeah. He can make um, trees, genealogical trees, showing them. His hobby is collecting cornets from around the world, and he, Cornets as in... <laughs> exactly, trumpets. And so he uses the same techniques um, applied to the forms of these and actually traces out the little heritage trees. And he can show that, to a rough degree, the evolution of these technological forms resemble, in many ways, the, the kind of uh, tracing of, of life as it forks and speciates. And so there is one sense in which... Um, the things that we make are really just an extension of the same evolutionary processes that made us. And that really shouldn't really be a surprise. So, for example, here, let me show you. This is from the book. This okay. is a picture, a graph, of, of what happened to underwater animals in the long time ago called trilobites. Uh -huh. This is how they changed. And here, oh. next to it, is a is a, a drawing showing what has happened in the history of cornet making. So I'm seeing here two branching trees, which look kind of similar, actually. Yeah. So, so let me ask I think you, we're selling you on this. Yeah, well, no, but <laughs> right, now, now let me get a little harder. Um, how far are you willing to push this biology uh, pattern? Like, uh, Kevin, it seems to me when I read your book, it seems like you almost think that ideas are kind of alive or almost alive. You even say that if you were to look at the living systems of the world, the kingdoms of animals and plants and all those little guys, of which there are six... Mm -hmm. You then, like, in a little map, you plop 
this technium thing. In, so you call it the seventh kingdom. Because the first six are all have mommies and daddies. I'm not sure how to explain the seventh. Yeah, so I call it the seventh because I think it is. I mean, I place again the question I'm asking in a larger context is, what is the stuff that that we're making and surrounding ourselves with? It is not just little bunches of gadgets. It's just not wires. We have to see that it's really part of something that's been going on for a long time. And so but there's a very big difference between a spoon and a whale. I mean, I'm not talking about the spoon. I'm talking about the whole superorganisms of I all know, the technology. But it's a lot of spoons. It's right? a lot of spoons. And what that what they what connects them is actually the fact that we have this stream of things that, that are organizing themselves, maintaining order, and in some cases increasing their order in the face of the rest of the universe running down. But and the spoons that you're obsessed with <laughs> have come from that same strand. They, there, there is a strand of these galaxies and stars, and here's a little corner of the planet where this self-organizing system has been making more and more order, and it made these animals, and then more and more order and structure and complexity and diversity, and it made minds, and these minds have made another thing that has high degree of order and complexity and stuff and may itself be starting to make other things, other minds. May it may have made... I don't, Does that seem, scare you, spook well, you, worry you? Let me read to you what, <laughs> let, let me read to you what some of your reviewers have said. <laughs> Kelly's central thesis is this. Technology has its own internal logic and rhythms that are distinct and sometimes adverse to the desires of the humans that create it. Technology creates itself using humans to do its bidding. Or, humans cannot direct or prevent technology's course, at least not in the long run. Like water contained behind a dam, relentlessly seeking escape, technology will eventually find its own way. Oh, doesn't that creep you out a little? No, no, no I know. Well, you're yeah, just you. you know. No, no, I'm, I'm, seriously. It's, it's like if, if you said the same thing about life, would that bother you? No, I'm part of life. I'm just worried about the thing. No, well, you're part of technology, too. Don't you understand that, you, that we humans have made, have invented ourselves? That, that, that you know, we have, this, uh, we have this external stomach we call cooking that has changed our diets, that has changed our teeth, our jaws, we have remade ourselves. When we become literate, we have, our brains are rewired. We think differently. We're not the same people that left Africa. We have domesticated ourselves. We are going to continue doing that. So why does that... You are technology. Does, does that bother you? Well, but when you say, what does technology want, I'm not sure I'm in that sentence. That's what creeps me out. It, what would happen if, you, by your logic, and maybe as a fellow traveler by your logic, you could imagine a situation where the things that we have created, not only our ideas, but the things we have made, will have, by the same processes that describe the evolution of life, will have developed a will of their own, and then there will be either a evolution at our command, or an evolution away from us, or a revolution, an evolution that might somehow compete with us. I don't know. To some extent, aren't we already in that kind of imagined future state? I mean, you think about the internet right now. If we wanted to turn it off, it would be extremely difficult to do. It's impossible. Yeah, I mean, and, and if we did, the, the catastrophic, nonlinear, unpredictable effects of turning this thing off would be 
unbelievably devastating, right? We would have no idea what would happen. But at All least the things would we'd break be if the internet was off, off at that point. Would we be turning off something we use, something we need? But at the moment when, I don't know where this gets this far, but at the moment when to turn off the machine is to commit a murder, that is that the machine would have come somehow sentient or full of feeling, but, 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 that would be but a very Kevin morally very troubling. clear also to defend him again. He, he's, he's, when you say want, and this is, I mean, this is the danger of want, right? Because he, he's not talking about consciousness. He's not talking about... Well, not sentence, yet. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, it, and it's like in the sense that you would say, you know, a, a, a little bacterium, you know, wants to kind of float up a nutrient stream or something like that, right? The, the bacterium presumably is not conscious of what it, what it is doing. It's not sitting there saying like, mmm, yummy nutrients here. This is great. If I only had a spoon, you know, it's not thinking <laughs> like that, right? But, <laughs> but nonetheless, you, you have to look at it and say, it is happy going up this little gradient, sucking in all these nutrients. And, and somehow that thing is driven towards that. And so maybe, maybe the problem is we don't quite have that, uh, I, I want, but there's no I. Right. Um, we so, don't have yeah. the kind of the verb or, or maybe I, I, the subject. I just want, you know, provocatively and deliberately, but partly so that we can rehearse this idea as things acquire more autonomy. Right now, the, the, the amount of autonomy and the things that we make is minuscule. It's about the size of a, of a bacteria or a grasshopper. But it won't be. It will increase. And so we have to, we have to prepare ourselves for the fact that someday we're going to make something that will have a want. And how do we deal with that? When, when we make something that you know, declares to us, oh, I am a child of God, what's our response to it? And so um, we, we, I use want to, to, to help us really prepare ourselves for that eventuality. Well, let me, let me just end, let me finish with this. You're like one of the happiest people I know. Because, uh, so you, you've often thought, said that if... It, that in, in contemplating these future problems, you just seem to always look on the, you know, the, that saw, that the, from the life of Brian, mm. always look on the bright <laughs> side of life. Um, in this case, if you were to give the technium a mind of its own, mm. is, is your thought that it will work out great? Yes. I, I, I think that... Uh, what evolution moves towards is increasing sentience of all sorts. So we see that, you see throughout life, mind being invented all the time. I think what we are doing is we're kind of, we're kind of evolution's way to invent minds that evolution, biology, biological evolution could not make. So, so we're going to invent all kinds of, of ways of thinking that evolution in a biological sense could not reach. And the reason why we're going to do that is we're going to invent all kinds of mind, different kinds of thinking, because our mind alone is probably not sufficient to completely comprehend the universe. We need other, other species of thinking. So we're going to populate the universe as far as we can with other ways of thinking so that collectively we can comprehend the universe. And, and those other ways of thinking are ways that biological evolution probably couldn't get to Itself, so I think that yes, the more kinds of minds there are, the better. I think part really of the problem good. is when you're saying, "Are we going to be okay?" Kevin is saying, "Absolutely, on the ten thousand year scale, we're going to be great." And <laughs> but you're next saying, year, but what about next Tuesday? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? right. Both are valid concerns. Some things in life are bad; they can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse When you're chewing on life's gristle That 
scramble, give a whistle, and this'll help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. Special thanks to Paul Holden Graber, Director of Public Programs at the New York Public Library in New York City. And, of course, to Stephen Johnson, whose new book is called Where Good Ideas Come From, and Kevin Kelly, his book, What Technology Wants. I'm Jad Abumran. I'm Robert Krilwich. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Rachel Rukier of Radiolab listener and supporter in Brooklyn, New York. Radiolab is supported in part by the Afroid P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Thanks, guys. That just made my week. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.